Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Nick Oswald. Nick has a PhD in molecular and cell biology, and he's been a researcher at a couple of startups, also been the editorial manager for the journal Neuroendocrinology, and is currently the managing director of the company founded, Bite Size Bio. And Bite Size Bio is an online magazine and community for cell and molecular biologists. And what we're going to talk about today is content marketing in the in the context of um, an online magazine and that community. So, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be here. So, so I'm a little curious. You're a biologist who has created a media company. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's kind of an evolution, which is probably fitting as a from a biologist being a biologist. I just I started in the lab, obviously, um, and I just found myself more drawn towards. I realised I wasn't a great scientist in the sort of green fingered sense, and I found myself more drawn towards uh, teaching people. Um, in the lab and, you know, helping people to overcome the problems they were facing in the lab and stuff. Um, I became kind of that in the company that I was working for. That was the role I took on. And then I started at that time, it was about 2007, and that this new media kind of popped up, blogs. So I just started writing and I discovered that I really loved writing and I loved writing about things that I thought could help people. And apparently people liked what I was writing and it just all snowballed from there. Three years later, I started off as my as a kind of business in its own right, and um, not long after that, it became my full time job. So it's just kind of evolved from there, and it's, it's been a crazy ride so far, but it's good fun. Ah, yeah, it sounds like it. That's a and that's a unique path into marketing from biology. I mean, there are many people who move from marketing and or biology into marketing, but um, through blogging, you're the first person I've heard of. So who tell me about who is your target audience for bite size bio? So the target audience I had in mind when I started this um is the same, was kind of people in the in their PhD studies essentially. So the people that have just come out of um out of sort of textbook learning if you like and have suddenly landed in the lab and they have this whole new learning curve to climb up. And we, the aim of Bite Size Bio was to help these people to acquire that hands-on knowledge um, that you know you can only get by trial and error or from a good mentor. And the way that we do that is we pull um, lots. We have about I don't know something about 300 people so far who have written 300 lab-based scientists so far who have written for us. And we're what we're trying we encourage them to do is to extract the kind of the real experience-based knowledge that they have. Um, crystallize it into articles and webinars and so on and make that available for um, for these people to read. Um, so in that sense, it becomes kind of bite-sized bio grows into kind of the, the missing manual for the lab, if you like. That's just sometimes the way that we look at it. Um, we find that by targeting those, you know, the early stage people, the PhD um, students, essentially, we get people from, it still attracts an audience well into kind of... Um, postdoc and beyond um, because because it's really you know there's only so much you can learn on the job yourself there's always something you can learn from other people 
Right, because a lot of postdocs, for example, in my experience, they they do their PhD in one area and then they transition in many cases to another area where they're starting sure. over with a whole new set of techniques, right? Yeah. And those yeah. are the yeah. ones they're going to carry on to the lab when they start their own lab or they go to a company and now they have a new set of expertise and presumably in a position to start buying and making buying decisions on things, right? Sure, yeah. And I really like, um, you know, the reason you started the um, writing at all, what you said was um, helping scientists, you know, in their day-to-day experience in the lab. So, um, and, and I, I remember, and I know maybe you do, I, but back in my day, you know, um, protocols passed around on, on copy paper and so on. And there's only so far that that can go. But, and there was no, well, there was no web. But there was no yeah. resource where you could share it, you know, more broadly. Yeah. And, and, and so I want to focus on that. That's really the essence of what today's podcast is about, is getting companies to think about beyond how their own products help scientists, is what other content can they produce or participate in, and can they build a community or either join yours or build a community of their own with content that is simply helpful for their target audience. Yeah, I think that a good analogy for that, I think, is the way when I started off Bite Size Bio, there was a lot of science blogs around. And um, just by luck or whatever, I decided very early on to do something that they weren't, to, to do the opposite of what they were doing. These guys were talking about themselves and what they thought and what they wanted to tell the world and stuff like that. And I, I switched it around to, I didn't talk about myself, I talked about what I thought could help people. And it's the same, it's an analogy with people, um, you know, there's a balance between talking about yourself as a company, your what products you make and, and what services you can offer and so on. And, and then also, you know, but at the same time, talking about what can just help people. And in that way, you gain fans and kudos and uh, all that good stuff that helps just drive a natural audience towards what you're doing right and and there is there's always a time for talking about yourself but as you point out sure. it's not how you build an audience and nope. um uh, one challenge companies may have is you know if you're continually talking about yourself and no one really cares yet what about what you have to offer because you haven't done anything for them and yep. and so there's an opportunity to create content that that is helpful um, for them. So scientists, I mean, they can come to your your site. They not only uh, do they uh, learn about different techniques, for example, and things that will directly help them in the lab, but you've gone even farther than that, right? You have a whole other section of content that has nothing to do with experiments, right? Yeah, all to do with anything that, well, our sort of unofficial tagline is things that help people in the lab and beyond. And so it's anything helping people in career, in their career selection or in admin in the lab or anything like that. You know, anything that can help a scientist, that's what we write about. Yeah, so that's a, I, I just pointed that out because it's a, that's a bit of a, a stretch 
to think about, all right, what else do they need that has nothing to do with what they're going to do on the bench, but how can we help them in their career? So now you've become a re- resource for many of the things that a young scientist and a postdoc is looking for as, as their career is in that critical phase of getting a degree, finding a postdoc, um, working with other people, getting grants and setting yeah. up your own lab and getting a job. Yeah. And, um, a set of content that by its nature will keep them coming back. Yeah. I, and there's a couple of ways to look at that. So in terms of how, uh, you know, what bite size bio does in terms of what, uh, what a company could do, um, to, to make friends and influence people, if you like, is that we just set ourselves out to be a mentor, to do what a mentor would do. And that's, you know, not just telling, telling people stuff that's at the sharp end of what they can do, but coming right back and helping them to lay foundations. Um, so, you know, that's something that people can do in their, you know, anyone can do in their marketing. That's what we've done. That's built what we have so far. Right. So you combine um, helpful information from, let's say, two primary sources, other scientists who have experience, yep. they're mentoring, yep. and vendors who can provide a range of content types from here's how you do this type of experiment yep. to here's, our, you know, here's how our product performs in this type yep. of experiment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's helpful for companies to think about you know, what, what is the range of things that we need to do to attract and hold an audience? And so you've provided a channel for doing that. What are you, what are your thoughts on, I mean, of course, a company might choose to make its own channel like that now, but they have to bring people in. Um, so, and there are other channels besides yours where they could distribute that same content, but, um, I guess talk a little bit of, about um, getting marketers to be more mentors. I guess uh, this, the foundation for that comes from uh, realizing that okay, you have you know if you have a bunch of in-house scientists who are experts in their own right, they're the resource that are producing or perfecting your products or whatever they do. Um, for you or perform the services but they also have a wealth of experience in their own right and so you can create a, a corporate voice that um, that includes that that sort of pulls mines that experience if you like and makes it available for people um, who are your potential customers and in that way you can um, you can create a rounded set of content so that um, so that you, you make a friend and then sell them something. One company that used to do that really well, I remember from my PhD, was New England Biolabs. That, they made the, their, um, their manual, so that was pre-internet as well, just in the beginning of internet. And um, they made a manual that uh, was packed with all sorts of information that you may or may not need to do experiments. And it was, as a molecular biologist, that was, that was a gold dust and NEB, I still have a lot of affection for them as a company just because they influenced me at that early stage. And then we always bought their stuff because you were familiar with them. So that's an example of what you could do on paper, but you can also do it in a, in a channel like Bike Size Bio or your own uh, blog or whatever. Just get more rounded in the content that you're producing so that you're thinking about the whole scientist rather than just what you can sell them. Right. And I, 
going as far back as as I was in the lab many many years ago, I do remember. I very, I don't remember any catalogs, but the NEB catalog stood out as yep. one. Of, wow, that thing is beautiful and it's packed with information beyond everything you could learn about restriction enzymes and all the other things that they were producing. Um, I also, just as an aside, remember calculating the gram cost of a, a <laughs> lambda vector, which was, I think, for a gram, was in the millions of dollars per gram. Even though you'd only need nanograms of it, of course. Yeah. So, but that was just a fun <laughs> thing to think about. Like, oh, my gosh, you could have a tube full of DNA that was worth a million bucks. <laughs> and you couldn't, you know, you could only do one thing with it. But um, – <laughs> So we talked a little bit before, and you talked about um, this graphic equalizer model of content. Do you want to <laughs> talk about that? Right. And I guess let me tee that up for a second just for people who might not know what a graphic equalizer is. And I hope we're talking about the same thing. But in an audio system, you know, besides having a bass and treble knob, you might have that more finely divided into um, different frequency ranges, which you could adjust to optimize the sound in your room, right? Okay, <laughs> I'll try and explain this. So um, it's just, you know, when we're talking about producing content for the whole scientist and not just what you can sell them, it's if you think of that as a sort of series of levers that you can up the intensity of what you're, of, of your marketing or reduce the, the intensity of your marketing, at the far right of the graphic equalizer, you have marketing for things that you can sell directly to them, so that the end of the funnel, if you like. And what... And but then, as you move to the left of the graphic equalizer, you have things that are more uh, they're less sales orientated and more kind of marketing and branding orientated. Um, and uh, you know, it's things that aren't going to necessarily pay off straight away, but they will just gain you a friend that will um, widen the funnel f for you, if you like. And um, what people I've seen uh, as we uh, we have interacted with uh, marketers with bite-sized bio what i've seen marketers tend to do is they turn the, the um turn the the levers or whatever you, you like uh, right to the top for the for the end of the funnel stuff and they barely focus on the stuff to the left so the, the graphic equalizer if you like is skewed to the treble if you if you um <laughs> if, you, if you use the stereo analogy um but if you think about it if you if you can even turn the volume up or turn the, the levers up to the to the left hand side even a little as much as your your company can bear that's going to bear out more fruit for you in the long run okay it's difficult to do that because you can't get an ROI on it straight away but the more the more you can um, skew your graphic equalizer towards the left to the base side or whatever then um, you know that's doing content marketing that's not orientated towards uh, direct sales, the more you can do that, the more you build a presence that is naturally going out and uh, influencing people and pulling in fans and making people look at uh, what you're doing and respecting you as a mentor, then that, um, that naturally feeds people into your funnel and you actually in the end need less of the, uh, of the, the sort of the sharp end stuff, the, the treble end. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, it makes complete sense to me. And what I, I like is, um, as you say, that 
although you don't get the immediate ROI from it, or it's hard to determine the immediate ROI, it has a longer lifetime in many cases because you can create content that is going to have value for many years at that end of the funnel. Yeah, this is the way that I look at this. Is that, and again, this is this is our sort of or my innocent stumbling through this from just building this from scratch. I didn't plan this out, but um, some of the content that we've got on Bite Size Bio is kind of. I made an early decision to make the content as timeless as possible, as far as as, as possible. So no news or anything like that. And some of the content that we've got on there is kind of six, seven years old, and it's. It pulls in, you know, individual articles pulling kind of 300 users, uh, 300 unique visitors per day, individual articles, because they, um, you know, we invested the time in making that article to begin with, and then as the search engines, you know, they let one of the, the metrics to take into account is how old the article is and how many people have visited it in the past or how many links are to it in the past and stuff, then, um, you know, those older articles perform really well. So, the focus. Yeah, one other way to look at the the, the the graphic equalizer is how immediate is the content? Is it timeless, or is it stuff that's going to be expire within the next six months? You know, if you're putting content out there that's timeless, it's going to stay there for you, and it's going to keep driving people towards you, or keep bu- uh, building kudos for you over years and years and years and years. Those articles that we have, um, you know, there's one that's about the fundamentals of how ethanol precipitation works. That pulls in something like six. That's our top one I think that was the last time I looked anyway and it's about that pulls in about 600 people per day and that's a very specific niche of people that are going to be looking at that and it's so fundamental that um, that people will be looking at that for years and years and years to come so from that initial investment if you like that there's no sort of um, it's not sales orientated so it's not uh, driving a particular purchase or anything like that it's just pulling in lots of the right people and it will keep doing that forever. I love that example about ethanol precipitation because I don't think that one's going away anytime soon. And uh, I don't even know. I mean, honestly, I've done thousands of those. And I have a rough understanding of how it works. I don't even know that you need to know how it works. But I'm sure even if you're just curious, you'd, you'd like to know and could attract a lot of people with that. And the other thing I liked about what you said is, um, you know, having this building that foundation with this content. And one of the things that um, I try to do with clients at Words to Wow and just in my audience is who are busy marketers who are trying to generate more leads. Mm. And, you know, they're focusing, as you might have said, on the right side of the graphic equalizer, the the treble end, trying to dial up more sales tools and and promotional content. And getting them to recognize that value of the left end. And um, one of my old colleagues used to call that, um, you know, some people call it evergreen content. She called it an annuity because it pays off forever over (laughs) a long period of time. And if you can create that kind of content, I think there's a possibility for you. And I think it's more than a possibility that you can take a huge burden off of yourself for some basic lead generation and then move people into an educational stage where you're providing them more, um, not quite sales content, but in you know, middle of the funnel content, which a lot of people, a lot of companies, um, miss out on and then, and get more people to the, to the bottom end of your funnel without doing lots and lots of extra work. Yep. 
that's the thing. It's it's it, the more you can, the more brave you can be in dialing up the 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 timeless evergreen or annuity content. I like that. The the more you can dial that up, the more brave you can be. Then the more competitive advantage you'll have in sort of five ten years because people are still spending. You know, your competitors are spending. Uh, money to get those leads to do lead generation, whereas your content is just doing it for you. Right, and it's yeah, that's that's the courage part is because uh, yeah, you might not be you're not being evaluated five or ten years down the road, but yeah, companies uh, at at a higher level should be thinking about that. Whoever is doing their content marketing for them or their marketing communications about focusing on that so that that will pay off down the road. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I, I think about content marketing in its ideal state and, you know, as we've talked about building that, building that audience and, um, a lot of what you do is around webinars and people think of those as marketing because typically when companies are producing webinars, they are often product oriented, but you can Think of webinars as media and build content into your webinars that is simply attractive to a particular audience by, by creating helpful content. So people would tune into that just like they would tune into watching the news. They just want to know what's going on. Um, and I don't know if I have a particular question here, but I guess you guys, I know you, um, you publish a lot of webinar content. You have a webinar festival I guess maybe talk about the range of types of content that go into those webinars. Okay, so um, when we do a webinar, we try to encourage people to think of what people who we speak to tend to think about a webinar as as, as, a, as an event that happens live and does something live and then that's it. And that's borne out because when you look at most places that hold webinars, they'll keep the web, they'll make a recording of the webinar and then they'll put it online for um, 30 days or something like that and then it's gone um, that's as far as I've seen anyway what um, we we tend to look at it as a bit differently because we think that um, again to try and make the webinar as timeless as possible so that the um, or we encourage people to make the, the webinar as timeless as possible so that we can they can get uh, you know, the marketer can get juice out of it for years and years to come as, as long as possible so we encourage them to look at the um, to balance the content in the webinar to make it again as brave as they they want to be to make it as educational as possible. Um, so maybe you know some people do uh, webinars that are entirely educational. That some companies do that with us. Others will come back and say it's uh, you know it's ninety percent educational and they'll put in ten percent talking about a specific product or something like that. But the good thing about talking about basic educational stuff is that it lasts for a lot longer, right? So we hope we have the webinar, and that gives the immediate sort of uh, live interaction, the leads generation because they get the contacts afterwards, and so on. And but then what we do after that is that we make the available the video available permanently on the website, so that um, you know they can get the they can get the the influence that that webinar deserves for for years and years. And that's, I think that if you're going to put all that in, that uh, that effort into producing a great piece of content, then it should be on the web for and available forever, you know, or as long as the internet's around or however you want to look at it. And um, but then what we also do is we give the um, the 
the, the sponsor or the, the vendor uh, a copy of the um, of the video and the option to have a transcript so that they can make content from that as well. So that, so that the webinar then becomes the live event that you normally associate with and the uh, associate that with and the lead generation and so on. But then it also becomes a content a content. Um, production exercise because they can make their own content from it and it becomes ongoing content marketing because it stays on um, on our website for forever yeah. and I think that's how, I think that's how you should treat a webinar if you're going to put the effort into making one I I, I agree and I like uh, what you said there about a transcript um, so every one of these podcasts shows up with a transcript when I put it on my website and I, I deliver that as a PDF, but I know there are sites that will put that in as text in an HTML, which has search benefits to it, right? Sure. Because it, it becomes searchable and just recognizing that not everybody consumes content in the same way. So I, I don't expect that everybody's going to listen to my podcast. I have some favorite podcasts I listen to. And then there are some that I say, just I just want to get to the meat, and I will go right to the transcript, probably because I can read it faster than I can listen to it. But then f for the ones who I really enjoy listening to, um, which is a whole other topic, um, I, I will tune in and listen you know, while I'm walking the dog, mowing the yeah. lawn, or whatever. But there are times when the written content is essential, and I can imagine the same for a webinar. Sometimes people just say, you know, give me the – transcript i'll read it on the train or whatever it is so i think there's uh, i really want to encourage companies to think about when they record anything to get a transcript made and if if you're not aware of it you can get a transcript made for a buck a minute um so if, whatever you believe me whatever you're paying for a webinar the 60 bucks for an hour-long transcript is nothing on top of it for huge value Definitely. And I think there's another way you can look at that as well is because like, our business is content production, like downloading the, the brains of scientists, if you like, into producing articles. And the problem or the, the, the rate limiting step in that is getting people to come up with coherent topics and information that they, you can make an article from. But if you listen to any one of your webinars and you want to make you know, one of your webinars, Chris, you could probably come up with... Um, the kernel of five or six good articles from that. So what you can, what we can encourage people to do is to take their transcript, and um, we can do it for them, but they can do it themselves as part of their team. Is that they can make briefs for five or six pieces of content that can um, then go out as individual articles on their website or blog or on Bite Size or wherever they want to put it. And that, in that, that um, sense, you're using the webinar to download the scientist's brain that you've uh, who's doing the presentation for you exactly and just getting scientists to talk about something on a recording is is another opportunity even if it's not a formal webinar just asking them questions and getting a transcript Absolutely. and starting from that and then i i'm going to put in a pitch for my own business because that's exactly what <laughs> i do at words to wow except they sort of do it in reverse i get companies to think about the questions that their customers need to have answered and then how to bundle those into a webinar and then take those same questions and make an article out of each separate one of them. So Excellent. things like that. And so you're yeah. really planning how to repurpose, but even so many companies have webinars that already exist and getting a transcript and highlighting a few key things in there would be a great start for creating five more pieces of content that would just, and then you take those, here's what I would do. 
You take those five articles, you spread them out, drop them out of an airplane, whatever. People find them, and the call to action in each one of those articles is go look at the webinar for a broader or deeper view of this whole thing, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, I have an example I use in one of my workshops of a company that did that really well. They did a webinar. They took all the questions from a webinar, answered them in a blog post. So um, people find the blog post, they get all the answers. I'll go back here to see the whole webinar and so on. It, it um, be, You can be really creative about moving people from one piece of content to another, which I think is um, a place where a lot of companies fall down. They throw out a piece of content, they get the names, and then – but they're not moving someone to say, all right, here's what you should look at next. Yeah. Um, enough of that. That's uh, my pitch. So <laughs> let's um, let's sort of wrap up. I want to think about this, and maybe this is a, a challenging question. I don't know. but So people could be building an audience on a site like yours. Yeah. And you get those names, and eventually you're, of course, trying to move them you know, to do something with your interact with your content or request a quote or a demo or whatever. And it's also possible that they're building a content channel or an audience on their own site. But I guess, is there a point in that funnel where it makes sense to switch over or should they be doing the full funnel in both places? Well, without being too biased, I would say that there's always an, <laughs> there's always a, an, a a case for spreading your funnel as wide as possible. Um, so it's always good to have a presence in as many places as you can. Um, but I think I suppose there's two ways you can look at how you're influencing people. You can look at the kind of you know the you can look at your content, say on on a channel like Bite Size, which is ed, your educational content. There, you can look at it like um, as it's just influence and influence building. So like the stuff that, you know, I don't know, I think in, in the US it was kind of general electric and, and things like that, went into schools and gave educational videos that were branded uh, in their name um, so that they became an influence in, the, in those kids' head. So you could look at that in the same way, uh, what you're doing in Bite Size, stuff that's just branded with your name and that's enough. Or you can also have it so that alongside that content, there is uh, some call to action that's just permanently there that drives people either towards your content or your products or, or whatever it is you want to do. Um, so I guess the, you can either make it more passive or more, or you know, the general electric approach, or the um, or you can make it more direct by having calls to action inside the uh, inside the article. And that's something we are moving more towards is having. Um, permanent calls to action inside these articles and things because uh, you know if it's not like you're um, you're being too in your face about it but you want it to be that the reader has the option to pursue the you know to, to pursue further content or influence from that company if they liked what they read in the article right yeah and I, I don't have a particular answer in mind I'm just thinking maybe companies at some point their content gets so specific for a certain audience that uh, maybe doesn't have the broad appeal that some of the other content on a site like yours would have, but that doesn't mean it couldn't go there. I mean, some people would be interested and, and there really is no reason why you couldn't have it in both places. Again, sure, pe uh, people find you in different ways. So mm -hmm. um, it was just a, 
a thought I had. Recycling um, content is always good, I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Cost yeah, effective. You want to find it in as, as many places as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, well, I want to thank you for this whole discussion. It was very helpful. I guess uh, one thing I didn't uh, tee you up for is that at the end of all these podcasts, generally, I have missed a few. I like to find out what people like to do um, when they're not at their job, what they do for fun and relaxation. Well, I um, have two kids who keep me very busy, um, but I I like to, um, I don't know, I play soccer, not very well, <laughs> do some running, not very well, but, uh, you know, I like to have a go at everything and just uh, keep active and have fun with people. Excellent. Yeah, I have coached soccer and very poorly. <laughs> I have a, a one of the longest streaks in league history, I am sure, and you can guess which end of the... <laughs> I think uh, we the, could compare the score I was on. I think we should compare one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much again for your time and um and we'll hope to talk to you again soon. Great stuff. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life Science Marketing Radio. If you enjoyed it, a rating or review on iTunes is always much appreciated. Or you can leave a comment on the podcast at words, the number two, wow.com. Have a great week, everybody.